as usual. The Grey Lady has, you know, slept over the years, the decades. <sighs> Puff pieces are endemic. And we've got a real stinker for y'all. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, it's like is this is this on the level of the let's go interview a Nazi and turns out he likes Applebee's shit they were doing in 2017? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll, I'll just read off like the first bit of it. Um, for more than a year, um, Fanny McGall, a physician assistant at a Connecticut hospital, called relatives to tell them that their loved ones were dying of COVID nineteen. Watched his patients gasp their final breaths and feared that she herself would get sick. Miss Mangal found no respite from stress when she went home. She is a landlord who rents the basement and first floor apartments at her home in Queens. And for the past year, conflicts of her tenants have poisoned the atmosphere in her house. The first floor lieutenant, uh, the first floor tenants have not paid in rent in fifteen months. Banged on the ceiling below her bed at all hours for no apparent reason, and yell, curse, and spit at her. Miss McCall said, "A tenant in the basement apartment also stopped paying rent, keyed Miss McCall's car, and dumped packages meant for her by the garbage." Um. <sighs> Okay. Yeah. Um. <laughs> and, you know, there's some nonsense here. And it's like she's lost sleep and, and she's also lost $36,600 in rental income. And she's like, it's been really horrendous. What am I supposed to do? Live like this? And the article then goes to bitch about how, you know, um, it's like the moratorium's fault for not letting her just evict people. Um, she did manage to get rid of the basement tenants um, because she managed to do that just before the pandemic. But she wasn't able to get rid of her first floor tenants. Um, and she... She is also, um, how to put this, she has taken up the violin to um, relieve her stress from, you know, not getting her rental payment on an apartment in Queens that, like, she owns and her mom, who is a bigger landlord, gave her, you know. Just in case you, like, felt any sympathy for this woman. <laughs> like, <laughs> so uh, This is the New York Times' clientele. Mm-hmm. This is their audience. So, you know, they gotta show some leg. Yeah. And it's like, oh, she never wanted to be a landlord, and you know, there's like a whole bunch of like puff piece bullshit in here. Um, 
But then, you know, as you start poking at the story a little, the cracks start showing. Um, In the article, they disclose that the basement apartment was made into um, a indoor gym for her and her boyfriend. And it's like her take was like $2,400 a month for her mortgage, which I'm sorry, but that's not, that's not that big a payment. I'm sorry. It's not. It's like, you know, sucks to be you that like, you know, you can't just like parasite off of tenants to get this money. But like, you know, that's all being a landlord is parasitism. Like, let's not, let's not kid ourselves here. So, you know, (laughs) like this feels like somebody's like trying to manufacture consent for some kind of expedited bullshit around like mass evictions or something oh yeah like the i mean new york city landlords are a special brand of psychotic but you know most of them don't have like you know some people suspect that like he's the boyfriend the offer is the boyfriend but you know i don't know like who who fucking knows probably in the same (laughs) like it's not like the new york times has never not like been like yes we're totally going to ask somebody from the leopards eating faces party about the recent legislation allowing people that live next to the hunting ranges of leopards to have shotguns in their homes Mm mm-hmm Mm-hmm. So, once people started, like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it gets a little crazier because, like, people started poking at her Twitter, and it's like the puff piece almost makes you feel sorry for her, but, you know, you. If you're, you know, an anti-capitalist, you've always got this sense of, like, okay, what what is her actual deal here? Like, there's something they're not saying. And what they're not saying is that she's a fairly typical landlord. She considers her tenants to be parasites. And she has admitted that she doesn't actually need the money to cover it. Which is completely unsurprising. Like, you know, she works as a physician assistant. Like, that's, you know, 140K. I mean, she makes good money. And she makes more enough money to cover this building. She just doesn't want to pay for, you know, the mortgage herself. Now that she's, like, inherited it. And yeah. it's just like... Well, uh, just, I guess it's... <laughs> Just complete psycho shit. So, you know, whenever you see one of these things, poke a little bit. Like, usually 
there is something fucked up in the background, and you will find it. So yeah. <laughs> it's not like the New York Times would ever talk to someone who's like actually works for 40k a year, mm-hmm. got it on a questionable loan, and has a unit. Yeah. But that's it. That comes with the house kind of thing. Fuck no. <laughs> this is like she did it to herself. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to Chop Shop Economics. We read this shit so you don't have to. (laughs) Speaking of shit, we've got a whole raft of it this week. Mm -hmm. Starting with some rather interesting developments on the stock market. Where it seems that the stock market actually does notice developments in the real economy. Sometimes. they ba- Basically what happened was the Institute of Supply Management, which is like, those are the people you look at when you're like, is the supply chain still fucked? The answer is yes. And they're like, they dropped. Their uh, their index dropped from 64 points to 60, which is a pretty substantial drop in activity. Um, it means that basically supply chain related activities, logistics activities, they're still expanding. The index is pegged to 50 um, as you know, the break-even stagnation point. But they're growing slower. The expansion is slowing down for, like, you know, obvious material reasons, some of which we'll get to in this pod. But... And as we already kind of got into last week, too. Mm -hmm. You know, this shit's fragile. And on top of that, developments... Which we will also get into later from OPEC and OPEC Plus around the price of oil and the fact that oil prices seem to actually be recovering to pre-pandemic levels were not received as welcome news. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, on top of all the supply chain shit, that means the cost of transporting things is going to be getting more expensive because the entire supply chain of this monstrosity called neoliberal capitalism runs on oil. Uh-huh. <sighs> so, what is one to do when all that shit goes down? Well, apparently, it's break a seven-day streak of stock markets closing at record highs. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, we're not talking, you know, the famous dive bomb that was the free market very suicide attempt we covered exhaustively in our third episode. But it's also really not good. (laughs) At all. (sighs) Like, we finally have proof that the stock market can bleed. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you know, the GameStop thing should have told us that. But 
that wasn't quite as systemic as some were hoping. (laughs) Well, this was like GameStop sucker punched Wall Street in a place they weren't expecting. Mm-hmm. And they've gotten wise to it, and they've effectively figured out how to actually profit from the possibility of meme stocks being a thing. Um, mm-hmm. This is something they can't really, like, zigzag around. Yeah. And it's like, like... you can't just wave your magic wand or create a nice, you know, algorithm or some bullshit that deals with that. There are no fucking shipping containers to move anything. (laughs) Yeah, that was... That was why, like, they expected a little bit of a decline on the ISM Purchasing Manager Index. But we basically were expected to go down to, like, 63.3. We hit 60.1. Um, this month instead. And needless to say, that's a very bad sign. Because it's like... Oh, yeah. The reason they're bottlenecking is not because, like, you know, things are stabilizing, but because the underlying infrastructure can't keep up. Like, if there are no shipping containers... That's that's a throttle on any logistics activities you might want to undertake. Yeah. This is not good. Yeah. If you're looking at this from the material basis of recovery. And we're seeing also things like jobless claims jumping up in the United States and generally economic projections for not just the U.S., but many other places have not been met. This recovery is not progressing at the rates that economic planners in either government agencies or in the corporate sector were expecting. They were expecting things to move not like significantly faster, but still noticeably quicker and more Mm -hmm. robustly than they are. And with all of what we know and have gone over about shit like corporate debt, that's not sustainable. Yeah. Like, if, if they want to keep this treadmill moving, it has to get up to speed, pre-pandemic speed, like pronto. Or people are going to start asking questions about whether the dollar is actually worth anything or if it's made of toilet paper. <sighs> so, shall we move on? Yeah. So Biden, in response to the growing rate of Delta variant infections in the United States, which are, surprise, surprise, running rampant in the parts of the country that have low levels of vaccination, and so far the data seems to be still getting crunched as to whether or not the vaccines are fully effective. There seems to be an Israeli study suggesting that the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine may not be fully effective against the Delta variant, but there's also a new French study which suggests that it still is, and even in the cases of infection, the 
risk of hospitalization and need of ventilation is significantly lower. Um, we're not medical scientists. We just make fun of economists. Mm-hmm. That's just what we know. Um, so Biden is proposing door-to-door vaccination. And frankly, Which, that's... You know, <laughs> that sounds that makes kind sense. of reasonable. <laughs> yeah. Like, at we, this point... Do, I have the post office do it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like... At this point, I, I sort of feel like... Part of the problem isn't just, like, you know, vaccine fusenics. It's... We still have, like, you know, long, persistent problems with access. Like, how are you supposed to find the time to, like, go and get it? Especially if your workplace isn't, like, actively pushing you to do it. That's how... You know, some places have managed to handle it by, you know, partnering with major employers and shit to, like, you know, get it done. But, you know, that obviously didn't cover everyone. And, you know. Especially because there's some states where, because the details were left up to state governments, Mm -hmm. that are just sort of letting the pharmaceutical industries pull the kind of fuckery of things like charging handling fees and basically pulling all kinds of bullshit that is making it so that the vaccine is not actually free at point of contact. Yeah. And like, that's basically the only way, you know, a getting this shit under control can work is if enough people are vaccinated that, we can actually start contact tracing again. Because the problem with contact tracing, when you haven't implemented it or you've implemented it in a very haphazard manner like we have, it's, it's not very fucking effective. And, you know, things went so out of control that it the whole system broke down. But, you know, you can stabilize things if you've got enough people vaccinated that you can start seeing individual cases again. And, you know, it's, predictably some mega chud had an opinion on this. Mm-hmm. <sighs> A very vocal, predictable opinion. Mm-hmm. They're going to take your guns and your Bibles. Both Madison Cawthorn, mm-hmm. the poster boy for the modern Hitler Jugend, allegedly. Mm-hmm. Parody. Parody. Not actionable. Here's the thing. Like, in a lot of these states... It's not slander when it's true! <laughs> Mm-hmm. Like, the thing of it is, is, like, this, the sort of efforts that, like, require, like, you know, a possible door-to-door vaccination program are the sort of places where, 
the sort of people who are going to be doing this aren't going to ask dumbass questions like, do you have guns? I need to take them from you. Do you have your Bibles? I need to take this from you. This is, you know, this is our opportunity to implement the new world order. We're going to you know, go rah, rah. And it's like, no, they're not going to do that. It's a red state. <laughs> and what this guarantees is shit's going to get really fucking ugly. Mm-hmm. This is what this is going to do. Like, He's com- like Cawthorn's completely full of shit here. Yeah. Um, he is absolutely smoking the Hitler crack. If he actually thinks this is thinks this is true, though, I mean, knowing this, Chad, he probably does. Um, yeah, like I wouldn't be surprised. But it's going to give license to people who already are suspicious of the allegedly illegitimate Biden government. And of the whole thing surrounding vaccination in the first place, a green light mm-hmm. to do something really fucking stupid. Yeah. Like, shoot up a vaccination center. Oh. Jesus, fuck. Ugh. Yeah. This is... But, like, I don't see this ending well. uh <laughs> Like, I think that, like, this sort I think the basic idea behind this is sound. It's just... It's gonna need a little, shall we say, cultural sensitivity to actually pull off. And, you know, here's, like, Madison Cawthorn giving, you know, authoritarians ideas. And, you know giving everyone who's, like, already, like, on the fence, like, you want another reason to go, no, no, I'm not gonna bother. (sighs) Yeah. It, yeah, and this is just gonna get people killed in all kinds of fun, new, and interesting ways. So, yeah. I wish she would stick to being a technical. (laughs) (laughs) If only. <sighs> yeah, moving on to something less. Oh shit, the American Troubles are looking great this season. Mm hmm. We got this actually kind of entertaining new york times article that if you read between the lines on it sort of hits home how utterly shit this thing called late stage capitalism really is Uh i'm talking of course of this absolute screamer from the new york times titled Oh my god. These Chinese millennials are chilling and Beijing isn't happy. (sighs) Which is then, like, the New York Times gets into, like, these particular, like, individuals in who are working in, you know, the Chinese equivalent to Silicon Valley that are just dropping out of the absolute grind that is being a corporate drone in modern China. Uh-huh. 
also it's really <laughs> also it's really funny how like they're like oh this is the millennials this is the millennials they don't even track generations like that they track them by decades these are zoomers we're talking about <laughs> or you know the 2010s generation like come the fuck on well, and it's so like, and God. Oh yeah. Well, you know they're trying to like up the sin with all the bullshit about millennials killing the fucking diamond business and Applebee's and all this other horse shit. So I'm not surprised they're doing this. But what's kind of interesting is this like whole thing of uh, Chinese workers just checking out and saying, you know what, fuck it, I'm done with this bullshit. Um, I am going to basically go hukikomori um, and not care, not do this like absolute grind that is doing 996 work in China, which is their shorthand for you start at nine, you finish at nine, you work six days a week, which I'm going to be honest, that's like a kind of hell that is managing to be worse than the you get to juggle three jobs in total precarity shit in the united states or the absolute like drone fucking that is japan like that's actually pretty fuck off awful uh so like basically they're like, the official government is not very happy about hearing about this, because, you know, you know, the, what this is, is basically, you know, Zoomers refusing labor discipline, let's be real here, um, which, you know, I can't fucking blame them, um, and so it's like it spawned, you know, this sort of countercultural dropout movement to like, you know, just stop doing shit. Like, you know, ignore all the relentless striving propaganda they push in the media. Like, you know, fuck all that. Like, I'll work a few odd jobs and live somewhere super cheap and just not do anything that I don't want to do. That's and, totally fucking fair. Mm-hmm. Really. Just and like, say. of course, yeah, uh, of course the, you know, the Chinese ruling class does not like this, but uh, I don't know. So uh, someone on our Discord brought it up that you know, this is like, oh, this is some CIA narrative. And it's like, I don't know about that. That's, that's pretty silly. This is, the vibe I get from this is very much like, this is a specific cultural expression of, you know, what we see in other countries. Um, you know, we saw it mostly in Japan first, then we saw it here. Yeah, it's not surprising that, like, China has Haikigomori. 
it's not surprising that they have part of a generation that have burned themselves out, like refusing labor discipline. Like this, none of this is particularly shocking. This is. <laughs> it makes sense. This yeah. whole thing that is late stage capitalism is a fucking grind. There's no part of it that's really especially pleasant. And I know for like the five people who will uncritically defend the glorious workers Republic of China. Hashtag tanky. Um, this may be something that is raising hackles with some folks, but hey, guess what? The Chinese state capitalist system is still capitalist. Mm -hmm. It is the engine of the global economy for a number of different reasons, including that there's a lot of, you know, easy labor discipline and cheap mass production and nicely located clusters of supply chains and all that shit so it's easy to exploit this population mm -hmm. kind of funny how that looks like the u.s during the gilded age or the north of england during the 1820s and 1830s um same shit different year different place yeah i mean at root it are very similar phenomena like this is of course people are going to resist this stuff. This is like, this is obvious. Like, of course they're, of course they're going to express their alienation. It's like, why shouldn't they? Yeah. This shit's brutal. <laughs> like you're working six day, 12 hour weeks. Mm -hmm. fuck that people were literally burning down factories and shooting pinkertons for that shit in this country's labor history yeah we've got like people like literally like entire mcdonald's's worth of workers just saying fuck it we quit and forcing the place to shut down because they're done with something that's definitely no picnic by any stretch of the imagination but i'd imagine if you have to choose between that and foxconn where their response to workers suicides was to install nets to stop people from jumping mm -hmm. yeah like if people are going to walk out on mass from their shitty mcdonald's jobs then yes they're going to do the same thing for even shittier jobs under worse conditions yeah and it's like you know one of them what like, one of the originals was like, you know, those people who say you know, lying down is shameful are shameless. I have the right to choose a, a slow lifestyle. I didn't do anything destructive to society. Do we have to work 12 hours a day in a sweatshop? Is that justice? And he's right. You know, there is... Absolutely. There is no valor in work. There is some in labor, but there is no, there's no valor in work. Let's, let's be honest with ourselves here. <laughs> Certainly not in this kind of bullshit work. Yeah. So if he wants to drop out and he can make it work, 
you know, more power to them. Like, yeah, go for it. And the fact that the Chinese government is responding by going, oh, fuck, and censoring it kind of strongly implies that there is something to this and that there is something of a bite that is being felt. Yeah. By the authorities. Otherwise, they wouldn't be bothering. Like, it's kind of like, you know, we know what the system in the U.S. did to the counterculture and the radical movements of the 1960s. It turned loose the FBI and shot people and framed people and did all kinds of other bullshit. But we can still see some things like some of the really, like, useless trending into QAnon, like, complete bullshit in the New Age movement and other, like vibrational frequencies of crystals garbage that started with the counterculture is still around and doing a pretty brisk business because that shit doesn't matter Mm -hmm. for the same reason that you could practically say the aesthetic of the obama years was the whole hipster vibe because there was nothing about i'm going to drink pbr and dress like a lumberjack that fundamentally threatens the american system yeah I mean, to the, and how to the extent that that was real, that was just, you know, yet another expression of, like, people making do with a really shitty hand. You know, wh- whatever motivated, like, the weird middle class people, like, that's, it, to the extent there was anything authentic there, it was that. It was just, you know, people who are fucked. Yeah. And, you know, I can appreciate people doing what they can with fuckedness as much as possible. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's worth thinking about these things. Of Why would a state go after a particular subculture unless that subculture is actually doing something dangerous. Yeah. I think it's like the thing is it's like they don't they don't much like Haikikomori in like in their local system, but like they have ways of dealing with them. This is more, you know, this is closer to like, you know, refusal of work, anti, well, you know, anti-work movements, things like that, like the resistance of labor discipline. Um, I mean, it's like, you know, Haikikomori and like this are kind of overlapping, but it's less socially dysfunctional. And I think that's what they're afraid of. Like, yeah, they're afraid of people who can articulate their own alienation in a society that is supposedly trying to abolish that. You know, supposedly, you know, we'll we'll get there in like twenty forty nine or something, um, but not now. And I don't know. It's like, ugh. this just drives me. This article drives me crazy. 
Like, there's, like, the article itself is really kind of, you know, a good example of the New York Times, like, approaching the point and then shouting loudly while walking in the opposite direction. Um, <laughs> but, you know, underneath the bullshit, there is something to it. It's just not something that's what the New York Times is looking for or prepared to deal with. Yeah. Speaking of shit, no one's prepared to deal with. <laughs> Uh, Wells Fargo is not dealing with consumer credit anymore. <laughs> your custom is no longer good enough for them. <sighs> We're not making this up. This is as per CNBC. July 8th, 2021. Wells Fargo is shutting down all personal line of credit accounts. Mm-hmm. Um, would you mind going into what those are for like those of us who aren't you know, place to take advantage of those kinds of things. So that's where you basically go to the bank and say, you know, it's everything from like, here's this credit card that we're just extending you because you are with our bank to like specific lines of credit for things like I would like to refi on my auto loan or all kinds of other shit. And Mm-hmm. they've even like bundled in like revolving lines of credit which is really scary because those are the ones that go okay we've reached the end of these terms we're just going to renew it and continue to extend this line of credit for a set duration after so yeah this is this is a pretty significant chunk of business for wells fargo this is arguably like one of the things that banks are supposed to do that is necessary for like making a capitalism possible yeah like this is this is basic retail banking shit and the fact that they're deciding to just pull out of the whole biz in this manner like i'm not telling you to go take your money out of wells fargo and put it in your mattress just yet but I'd think about moving banks. <laughs> you know. I, I'd start looking at a credit union. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Especially like, if you're with Wells Fargo. <laughs> Let's be honest yeah. here. This is the kind... Like, this is the kind of shit that is some seriously, like, oh, we're in trouble, children. Mm-hmm. This is Ralph Wiggum is sitting on the bus chuckling i'm in danger but it's wells fargo Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. this is yeah i mean that's that's like the scary thing like this is not too far removed from okay your bank account just like you know disappeared and you'll get a check from like the fdic um in a long while in the meantime maybe find somewhere else to put your money before your direct deposit goes through next (sighs) yeah this is some genuinely like wells fargo is selling the ladder that is necessary for economic recovery Mm -hmm. and they're hawking it to whoever will buy it and that's yeah you know, that's not quite Wells Fargo is doomed. 
But, yeah, no, it's not far off. Yeah. I mean, when I was asking about this earlier, um, you pretty much told me that it was... um, The problem was essentially that this means they don't have the liquidity requirements to make revolving credit work. They can only lend in these fixed term manners, like with credit cards or with, um, you know, personal fixed, uh, fixed principal loans, which they're still doing. Um, I would, I would not get one right now. (laughs) Oh yeah. If they bailed on that, then it would be promptly followed by the news of meanwhile, Wall Street has spontaneously combusted. Mm Mm-hmm. But this is definitely, like, you know, the one, the third largest bank in the United States is, as we've already covered before, going in on Bitcoin, um, ending housing refinancing, Mm -hmm. and now is going, actually, yeah, now lines of credit have to go. That, those are not steps that a bank that's in good conditions does yeah like we've all anyone who's like remotely watched this space for a while knows that wells fargo has not been doing well for a long time they've been up to all sorts of shady shit to like keep you know keep things going one more quarter this is this is them running out of tricks. They're at the end of the line here. Like yeah. they they gotta. Th- this is seriously. This is bad. Yeah, I mean they ha- they need to fix their liquidity position very soon, or they will not be a going concern. Like that's just that's just all there is to it. Yeah. Like, you don't do this shit unless you are seriously in trouble and you have shot the bed in some fashion or another. Yeah. That's just all there is to it. And for Wells Fargo to be going, oh shit, we have to bail on what is basic bank business. I would not call that a good thing mm-hmm. at all. That's a very like, uh, are you guys okay? And yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like the irony is, is like, you know, the money printer has been on for like, you know, gods know how long. If that's not helping Wells Fargo, then they must be in some real shit. Oh, yeah. Like, and if the money printer can't paper over absolutely horrible supply chain shit, or Wells Fargo being able to make their liquidity for doing basic retail banking shit, then this whole recovery is not going to be long for this world. Yeah. I don't don't even want to know what their commercials... uh what their commercial side looks like right now, because it can't be good. Speaking of shit that definitely isn't good, mm-hmm. and are 
You know how much we talk shit about Bitcoin? Well, now we've got a lovely example of why we talk so much shit about Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. There is a Bitcoin miner in upstate New York that is on Seneca Lake, one of the Finger Lakes, and... To help, you know, cool operations, they use lake water. Well, apparently they're cycling through so much of it that there's folks in New York who are going, wow, the lake is feeling like a hot tub. Yeah. 108 degrees in the summer, something like 85 in the winter. And it sounds very much like this isn't just the thermal plant's fault. This is also them dumping the waste heat from Bitcoin mining, like 45 megawatts worth into the lake. You cannot just dump 45 megawatts of waste heat into a lake and not expect things to go horribly wrong. And this is one of those places that we've been bitching about for like a few months now. We're starting to see like, you know, why people didn't want this plant reactivated in the first place. Like, not only is it not providing power to customers, it's, you know, shitting like 45 megawatts of thermal energy into one of the Finger Lakes for no reason. So you can make your fucking climate change beanie babies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because you're not allowed to do that in China anymore. <laughs> also, some, like, dumb Wall Streeter can get hard. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, let's not forget this, by the way. For all of you stupid, like, cryptocurrency fucks out there who are, like, sh like shooting wads about how crypto makes it possible to take the currency creation power away from big governments. It's like... Yeah, that's also true for Wall Street, <laughs> who has way more money than you do. Way more means and incentive to act on this than you fucking do. Mm -hmm. And doesn't give a shit about boiling Lake Seneca for funsies. I mean, hell, they've been doing business with Exxon for like 40 fucking years, even after it was like an open secret that ExxonMobil was actively funding climate disinformation to the detriment of life on Earth. Yeah. I mean, hell, they're still at it. <sighs> they just boasted about having, like, 11 senators on their payroll. So, yeah, this is, you know, hey, this is your grand emancipation coming, except it's probably not going to be for you, assuming that it doesn't all explode first. Mm-hmm. Like, if we get through this shit with climate change, this will be, like, a chapter talking about how fucking stupid late-stage capitalism was. Yeah. 45 fucking megawatts. God damn. Oh, and speaking of stupidity, and this one is more in the vein of watch this space, mm -hmm. there have been a series of meetings within the members of OPEC+, Plus, which is basically OPEC and a couple of other major oil exporters like Russia, that 
have been coming together to figure out what to do about oil prices to be able to both sustain a recovery and meet the fiscal needs of the members. Uh, For those of us who uh, followed this podcast before and who remember some of our previous work, particularly the whole Death of Oil special, y'all can attest to that. About a year ago, the failure to sort this out led to the most spectacular dick measuring contest in economic history where the Saudis and the Russians promptly whipped their fucking sausages out and proceeded to show everybody how big they were by getting out electric meat grinders and shoving in. Mm-hmm. Well, it looks like we might get a repeat performance there because the United Arab Emirates, who are one of the founding members of OPEC and a fairly significant power within the global oil industry, not quite Saudi levels, but enough to ruin OPEC's day if they don't play ball has walked away from negotiations. And as of time of recording, there have been no reported updates or news as to whether or not there will be follow-up meetings on this question of coordinating production. And there is even speculation in places like CNBC that this could be the end of OPEC. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, it's like we probably talked about this I'm good with that. earlier, but like, you know, as you might have already noticed, you know, oil prices per barrel have recovered in you know the past year ish um you know we're right back to around 70s a barrel and that's you know that's a pretty decent take rate but like not every oil producer can justify it on you know 70 you know, some uh, sometimes you just you just need more than that to make things work, and like this has also been a problem for like, you know, local oil producers who are like you know fracking and you know using shale oil and shit like that. Like their problem is basically, oh, you know, it's too fucking volatile. What happens if this shit happens again. What happens if, you know, the UAE and the Saudis get into a pissing match like, you know, Saudi Arabia did with Russia last year? Like, that's... That's a problem. And what's really dangerous here from an oil market perspective is the UAE are one of those oil producers who can do it at competitive prices to the Saudis. Like a Mm -hmm. thing that was a critical dynamic in the whole oil war that happened last year was that Russia on one hand potentially had sufficient diversification of industry to be able to tank losing oil revenue for a sustained period. But the Saudis, by contrast, had a significantly lower floor, so they could drop their revenues and make Russia hurt disproportionately, especially because they're the world's swing producer. Well, in this case, 
there is no price advantage to either side. <laughs> Emirati oil is, while not quite as cheap as Saudi oil, still definitely in that land of that nice Arabian sweet light crude that is so easy to refine and is accepted by so many places around the world and easy to produce. So if they start cutting each other's throats and they turn it into a price war, they both could drop the price to levels that would actually hurt. Mm -hmm. And would definitely make Russia just sob and beg for mercy. Yeah. Yeah, like, that's, that's the problem here. Like, they're going to basically just do this brinksmanship all over again because we clearly learned nothing from last year and it's like while i don't much like these motherfuckers i don't like the oil industry getting it back up it's like we don't want to give the shale people any new ideas and you know watching if OPEC actually falls apart, then price volatility is going to be here to stay. Yeah. And that's just not going to be good for anyone's day. Yeah. But it will also definitely kill the oil industry. So, you know, <laughs> I guess anything that can hasten breaking that addiction and possibly strangle the stock market, I'm, I can go with. Yep. Speaking of strangulation, by the way. Mm-hmm. And end sound cue. We got this just lovely special <laughs> at the Wall Street Journal talking about container shipping prices reaching unprecedented heights. And when we're talking unprecedented heights, we're talking in excess of $8,000 per 40-unit shipping container for just getting shit on a container that will get on a boat and get somewhere. Yeah. That's, like, the average price for destinations like China to the U.S. West Coast or China to Europe. It's more like 12 k a container... And, and if you want that overnight shipping, it's more like twenty four <laughs> thousand <laughs> each mm-hmm. for one one shipping container, just one. And you know, when to get a sense of the scale of how bad this is, just you know. Take a second to Google a picture of a container ship and try to count the number of containers on there. Mm-hmm. Now multiply that by like 10,000. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and by the way, that baseline 8,000 price range, that was an all-time record high and quadruple the usual rate pre-COVID. Mm. 
Like this is this is part of what I was talking about with the you know purchasing manager index, like taking a shit by whole or four whole fucking points. Like there's nothing you can really do if like every container slot is basically spoken for as it op- as soon as it opens up. Like there's nothing you can do. Especially because, oh wait, you don't have onshore warehouse space. Your onshore warehouse space is there to process the shit that's supposed to be continuously showing up at the port of San Pedro or the port of Los Angeles or the port of Seattle or wherever the hell it is that you're receiving your goods. Mm-hmm. Like It was supposed to be on a train two days ago. Yeah. Oh yeah, and speaking of... For extra funsies, this same report also found that there was analysis done by the Danish-based shipping research group Sea Intelligence uh, APS, and they said they recorded a staggering number of ships that were more than a week late in their arrivals at U.S. West Coast ports in the first five months of 2021. Now, I mean, when we're talking the global economy that could be nothing but then you know they threw in a little comparison of guess what the number of ships that were a week late on the west coast the entire west coast all west coast ports from 2012 to 2020 was 1535 in eight years (laughs) like put that on a graph that's a fucking hockey stick jamming itself firmly up the ass of the globalized economy well i mean they did finally get that one ship moving again i'm sure it can (laughs) contribute its 500 containers to helping solve this problem for the low low price of what 550 u.s dollars paid to egypt for like completely fucking the canal for a week at least the ever given is gonna be ever given it's gnome transports those critical garden gnome supplies that are so essential to keeping the uk afloat in these post-brexit times mm-hmm. so yeah like as we've been saying supply chains are really really fucked and it doesn't matter if you've got free money mm-hmm. or any of this other shit. When, wait for it, it costs way too much money to move goods and services. Yeah. And you are dealing with levels of friction that are not supposed to be there. Costs that are not supposed to exist. Mm-hmm. And, like, really quickly, um, one of the goods that we're tracking now that didn't used to be a supply chain concern, but kind of is now, um, because we've been using so goddamn much of it, rubber. There is apparently a blight on, and even without that, you know, it's like... I suppose we could handle, like, 
the supply chain shitting itself or, you know, the rubber just, you know, straight up having blight conditions and yields just completely shit themselves. And, you know, we had to make it all out of oil now for a year or two. Like, you know, that sector of the economy can, like, survive one of those. I'm not sure it can handle two. I'm not sure it can handle both of those. It's bad. Certainly not. (laughs) Certainly not all of those. Like, like, no fucking way. Like, you've got, you know, on, like, the supply side, you know, you've got, because of the blight, you've got, like, less of it being made in general. Um, the workers, a lot of the workers are sick. The trees are sick. So you're not getting as much. And then you've got to transport it to a shipping container that may or may not exist. And then you've got to put it onto a boat slot that also may or may not exist. But the customer needs it yesterday and they haven't received any for six fucking weeks. (sighs) Frictionless flows, everyone. (laughs) Ah, just so yay. Good job, guys. Those spherical cows are just totally having a time of it, aren't they? Mm hmm. So I guess that uh, brings us to our last word. And I guess a good way to end today is pointing out we actually have now proof from multiple different ways that this time around, Wall Street might not be able to tank this again, mm-hmm. and the Fed might not be able to pull another rabbit out of its hat. Yeah. Like, there is a recovery going on, but, and, you know, as we've said, we've kind of had to back off of the, you know, there there is no recovery at all narrative, but, like, Let's be real here. This is this is extremely brittle, and we're seeing a lot of things that are probably going to shred it. Let's be honest here. Like this is this is not. A, I don't think this is a state of affairs that can really last. I don't. I don't think we can navigate all of these little crises um, stacking up into one big one. Like, <sighs> and it's just like the Great Depression. It's mm-hmm. the the story that just we really and I, we keep hammering home on this because this is something that is just such a big misconception. And how it all unfolded is it wasn't the stock market went kaboom and then there were runs on the banks and then the economy was fucked. The end. It was more like a lot of things were just steadily accumulating in multiple sectors of the economy in crisis proportions 
things like the growing farm debt problem, the international debt cycle that was created by the Treaty of Versailles, and all these other things that were just stacking up and stacking up in ways that really were not good individually. But then when you accumulate all of them into a single, like, cohesive whole... It was just unbelievable in terms of the damage it did to the economy. And this was because, again, there was no one thing that did it. But when you add up enough things, yeah, then you don't need one thing to tip it over. And, and Wall Street's already playing with fucking fire with Bitcoin. Yeah. I mean, let's, let's be clear on this. Like, just because it, so far, it, what they're doing appears to be working. But the problem is, is that before this recovery to really finish itself, everything needs to return to, like, pre-pandemic plus, you know, some growth. And what we're seeing is, is, like, some sectors of the economy are growing, some stuff is returning to normal and starting to function again. And a lot of stuff just kind of isn't. It's not it's never quite bad enough to like completely collapse the material basis of society, but it's yeah, it's this death of a thousand cuts shit. Like, it's like you do enough of it, <laughs> doesn't matter. Yeah, like people, you know, people tend to choke up. You know, the Great Recession. You know, the Great Financial Crisis. You know, the thing that blew up two thousand eight as like, oh, this was you know just you know subprime losers like buying the wrong things as the wrong people. And, like, no, it was a whole bunch of shit. Like, it was all of these financial products that they were just shitting out, you know, to, like, make money on a fairly mundane housing price crisis. And, you know, that coupled with you know, some other underlying weaknesses in the economy, you know, some of the... Consumer debt being at all-time, at-the-time highs, by the way. You know, if Mm -hmm. you've been following this show, you'll be noticing the increasing frequency with which we've been using the words Mm all-time. And, like... That's bad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, hell, there uh, there was still some lingering damage from... The jobless recovery we had after the dot bomb. Um, we had Clinton era shit going on. We had the disruptions from 9 11. Like, there were a whole bunch of moving parts to the financial crisis, but nothing was ever really resolved. And it it's increasingly looking like they've dimly realized that some things need to change, 
But this time around, there's not much to do it with. That's the problem. Yeah. Like. They've really blown their wad. Yeah. They got nothing. And they're expecting. And we. This isn't just us pulling this out of our ass here. This is. The Federal Reserve has said in like September 2020, before the election or any of the other shit that went with that happened, there is no way that we'll be able to pull the rabbit out of the hat again. We just can't do it. Yeah. And like, like the legislature has been in deadlock on a lot of things and there have been no real proposals to deal with this. I suppose Biden was thinking he could like paper over this with, you know, the American rescue plan with the infrastructure bill with all of that stuff. And, you know, that's, it's turning out that might not actually happen. Which is a problem because they need to do something. But norms. But norms, Miss Silver. Yes. But norms. De- it's not okay to fire the Senate parliamentarian, even though the Senate parliamentarian is handing down really dumbass rulings that are endangering the stability of the economy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We, we must preserve the right for old racist gas bags to read the phone book while the country's economic state deteriorates and uh, nobody asks serious questions about why the fuck the Capitol police were giving a bunch of fascist pricks, a guided tour of the U S Capitol. <laughs> I mean, they only have to fret in to read the phone book into the record. They don't actually have to do it. They can just say they're going to, and that's enough. Apparently. Yeah. So, you know, if there's anything to take away from this, it's, you know, organize in your communities, talk to your coworkers, use the weirdness in the labor market to get to something a little better before things completely implode. Mm-hmm. And, you know, check out your local DSA, SRA, and all the other various leftist alphabet soups out there. Yeah. So that's it then. This has been Chop Shop Economics. Reading this shit so you don't have to. Bye everyone.